everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Allison Barr Allen, co-founder and CEO of FAST, an online login and checkout platform on a mission to make buying online faster, safer, and easier. The company is backed by Stripe, Index Ventures, Sasa Ventures, Global Founders Capital, and Brian Sugar. Prior to FAST, Allison held senior product roles at Uber, where her team launched and scaled Uber's payments, risk, and compliance products globally. And before that, she was a strategy consultant at PwC. Allison is also a passionate private and public investor, both as an LP at Operator Collective and as an advocate for value investing in the public stock market. We talked about her interesting experiences at Uber, her journey at FAST over the last 12 months, the value of listening and acting on client feedback, the importance of company culture, partnerships, and having a really clear vision of the future of your company, and much, much more. Now join me in a wonderful conversation with Allison Barr Allen. Allison, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Very, very happy to have you here. Maybe we can get started by hearing a bit about your background. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Allison Bar Allen, and I'm the co-founder and COO at a company called Fast. Fast is building one-click checkout for the internet. So our goal is to create the Amazon-type shopping experience for every other website online so that you don't have to re-authenticate yourself every time you, you want to buy something from a new store or, or browse a new website. Prior to Fast, I worked at Uber for five years. I started on our ops team there in Chicago. Um, and prior to that, I was in management consulting, work at, working at really big health insurance companies. At the time, my brother was two years younger, and he was a self-taught front-end developer who was working at really small startups in Boston. And here I was wearing business casual clothes and traveling to Connecticut every week on an airplane. And I thought his life was way more fun than mine. So I, I decided I wanted to get into startups. There weren't that many startup roles for pre-med uh, management consultants, I found, but I, I was lucky and, and got a job at Uber at the end, fall of 2014, working on our driver operations team. Uh, so Uber was scaling really rapidly, but the hardest problem was making sure that we had enough drivers on the road because there was just sort of like unprecedented demand for the product from, from the rider side. So my team helped manage the Chicago market and really manage the driver experience end-to-end from when they get onboarded and signed up all the way through to making sure they're happy on the platform um, and, and driving with us. So it was an incredible experience there. And I was in Chicago for a year with Uber and realized that payments, I thought, was the most important part of this whole ecosystem for drivers because drivers were mostly driving to get paid. Um, and if they didn't get paid on time or if they didn't understand why they got paid a certain amount, it was it was very catastrophic for them. A lot of them were, were living paycheck to paycheck. Um, so they really needed the money. So I ended up moving to San Francisco to join a team we have called Product Operations, where we took people from ops teams put them directly on product teams to work with product managers and engineers as we're building 
products. Um, so I focused on on payments, specifically driver payments. And I focused on two main things while I was there. One was product strategy. So Uber launched in 70 plus countries all over the world in two to three years. So we suddenly had this very, very global company. And it was also a very local company in that there's a lot of nuances, especially when you're when you're moving people around cities. So my team would work with ops teams all over the world to get their product requests and feedback um, and ideas for what their product teams at HQ should build. And it was an incredible learning experience because payments is very localized. So you really understand when when you can't accept a certain payment method in a country and that's leading to lower growth or it's blocking people from being able to use the platform, you you realize how important payments is to, to everything. And it's just like such a backbone and cornerstone of all products. So I learned a ton about localized payment methods and really how people pay for things all over the world. In most countries beside the US, you can pay for Uber trips in cash. So we built a lot of products to make it easier for riders to pay in cash and for drivers to, to pay back Uber. I launched our instant payment product in the US for drivers. So we we went we launched 24-7 on-demand payments, which was really just taught me the the again, like validated how important payments was because when drivers can pay themselves instantly, they they really love it. And it became an incredibly sticky product that, that taught me a lot about not just like how you can make a really easy consumer experience for drivers, but how it is like relatively complicated behind the scenes to, to manage these money movements in a, a quick way. So um, I learned a lot about how payment stocks work. So I managed a team there and then I thought I was going to become a venture capitalist. So I wanted to invest in fintech startups. I loved like trying to find startups with two to three people uh, or just like, it was just a grain of an idea. And I really like studied a lot about different companies and tried to identify what I thought um, made like differentiated which companies became really big versus versus ones that didn't. I mean, hypothesis around it is I believe that really big companies to build a really big company, you have to be solving a really big problem. And a lot of companies fail because they're not solving a big enough problem. And because of that, it's just harder to build a big business. Or companies try to like take a technology and then identify the customer problem that they're trying to solve, as opposed to starting with the problem and identifying the best technology to solve it. So a little over a year ago, I met Dom and as a potential angel investor in his company, um, and he was building or thinking about a lot of stuff that I had thought about. And I had a whole investment thesis around frictionless finance or ways that I thought you could reduce friction in the payment flows um, to add business value. And then Dom had built a one-click login product and was planning to build one-click checkout. So I introduced him to a lot of investors, one of which ended up investing. And then Dom convinced me to join the company full-time. So, And the, and the reason I did was I I looked at so many companies and I... I just hadn't seen anything that I thought had the potential that would do it fast. It sounds like you had decades worth of experience in five years at Uber. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really hard to sort of, you just jump on the rocket ship and like, it's not always easy, right? Like we worked crazy hours. We dealt with like really stressful situations. We were managing like huge amounts of like, it was a big responsibility to manage payments for yeah. riders and drivers at that scale in so many countries. So lots of responsibility, but it taught me. And like, obviously there were a lot of sort of public ups and downs with the, with the company as well, but it teaches you a, one, like to think at a global scale. So like 
from the beginning, Dom and I, and like our mindset is we're building a company. We're not like building a startup. It's like for me to get excited about a problem after working on a company like Uber, it has to be a pretty big vision because I'm just used to people knowing like the products I work on. So it's like not really fun if uh, everyone doesn't really know your product. So, and fast is one of those things. It's like, just like with Uber, where it's like a product that can help almost everyone. I really believe that fast and what we're building can really help everyone in the world. So yeah. So, so that's one of the things. And the second is like, you just yeah learn to deal with lots of, lots of ups and downs. So I think Dom and I are both pretty resilient emotionally. So everything that comes along, it's like, we, we just figure out a plan to tackle it. Yeah. And, and it definitely sounds like you invested, but you invested a lot more than, than just money. Right. You're, you're, you're all in. Yeah. I never actually made the angel investment. I uh, just, just jumped full time, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely all in at this point and yeah, it's been fun. So tell us a bit about the company. It makes a lot of sense given your background and then the problem that fast is trying to solve, but tell us how Tom's initial vision and, and, you know, some of those initial challenges to get started. And, you know, I know you guys, obviously I'm, Sure, you consider yourself in the very early days, but there's still a lot that you've already built. Yeah. So Dom had built a prototype, which was a passwordless authentication. So it's sort of like magic links where you can like click a button and it's login. And then when I joined in our, what we raised uh, the pre-seed round on about a year ago from Johnny Hammer, who's an um, incredible fintech investor at Index. Well, he, he invests in other things, but he has an incredible fintech investments. So what he invested on was checkout. So turning that one-click button into checkout as well. And the reason it's it's really big and very interesting is we're really combining authentication with payments. So there's been a lot of players in the space, like Login with Google has done pretty well on the authentication side. Facebook used to be in the space a little bit more before some of their trust issues. And then on the payment side, there's different wallets. There's like Venmo, there's PayPal and others. But even if you use PayPal, if you go to Nordstrom, you generally still have to create an account, which means you have a password. And then you just use PayPal as the checkout method where we're really combining authentication with payments, where if you go to a website for the first time with one button, not only can you create an account with the store so that the store knows who you are and can build a relationship with a customer, but also you can check out um, and you don't have to, to enter, like fill out any forms. And there's one store we're on called Shark Wheel where it's like on the checkout page, there's like four different tabs and fast checkout is like at the button. So it's like, would you rather fill out this form with like 15 plus fields or press one button? Um, and for most consumers, like the one button will, will generally be the obvious choice. So yeah, I mean, it's it's a bet on like reducing friction on the internet um, and whether like it will help um, all, t- all types of stores and businesses. Um, and it also can help like smaller stores better compete with with bigger stores. In addition, there's like a lot of interesting things on the... So because of my Uber experience and my sort of fintech obsession, I studied international markets a lot, especially like payments wallets in Southeast Asia and China. And there's just like... Because what happened was Gojek ended up creating mobile wallets. Like Uber had a strategy in the space at the time. You see what happened with Alipay, Tencent. And like these are just like huge payments companies. And a lot of them are also combined with commerce. Um, so commerce and with social. Um, so, so WeChat has a payment method that's sort of everywhere. 
And no one's really been able to do that in the US. I think companies like Facebook are sort of trying to add some payments components um, now that they see that that's sort of the next thing beyond advertising, but they chose to invest in advertising instead. And because of a lot of their trust issues, you're not going to pay your taxes with Instagram payments, right? <laughs> like, I don't think you would trust that as a platform would do sort of like more confidential purchases with. So really there's like a huge opportunity to be this trusted identity and payment provider in the US, which is a big market and, and also in other markets. And then another part is the identity component. So as an investor, I was actually looking for a company that I called an identity API. So at Uber as well, we spent a lot of time and money thinking about identity. So every new driver who signs into the platform, we have to prove who they are. We have to upload their driver's license. We have to validate their insurance. Their insurance expires. We have to build a technology to notify them. And then they have to update new insurance. And we have to make sure all the documents are valid. And we got our payments money license in Europe. And to get the license, we had to validate the identity of every single restaurant on the platform, which meant we had to collect all the business documentation of every business. So these are like huge efforts and they're all related to identity. So like identity is just such a core component of, of so many different businesses. And another thing is it's like, if you upload all the documents and Uber approves you like to do it on Lyft, you'd have to exactly duplicate everything you just did. So it's like, how can we make it easier for consumers to engage with these types of businesses? So as an investor, I was looking for a company that I called an identity API, which is, I was like, why, if you move addresses, why can't you just update your address in one place? And then every business would just pull that information as opposed to replicating your data in so many different places. So I, I didn't find that business. I found a couple of small ones in the UK, but I met Dom instead. Um, and, and we sort of see the opportunity of checkout as an onboarding mechanism to a much broader identity strategy where it's like over time, we can build trust with people and collect additional amounts of information um, that hopefully you then just fill out one time and then every other business can use as opposed to you having to fill it out over and over again. And I guess you have two sides here, right? You have the trust and the identity from the consumer to customer, but then you have the same and a whole, you know, all other challenges as well from the business. As you move forward and as you start onboarding and gaining momentum, have there been any perhaps counterintuitive lessons that you've you've learned along the way as you develop the product? Good question. I'd say it's a unique business in that we're B2B to C. So we're, other people have tried to solve the problem we're solving through password managers or through like Chrome autofill, which is where you're trying to onboard each consumer individually. We're trying to onboard businesses and then businesses will be our distribution through the consumer. So we're really building products, but it's also interesting because we're solving a problem for both customers and businesses. So businesses want increased conversion on their sites. They want to like get more people to buy things and then consumers want it to be easier to buy things. So we are solving a problem for both sides of the marketplace. I think it's harder if you're trying to solve a problem for one side and then you try to convince the other side that there is a problem when there's not. So we launched about a month ago and over the summer, we spent a lot of time like building our platform. And what's also interesting about our product is it's a payments product. It's an identity product, but it is also an e-commerce product in that we're ingesting all the order information. So on the checkout page, we're actually like 
pulling in what you actually ordered, which you can then track on a dashboard we have for a post-purchase experience. So that is definitely something unique. It's uh, PayPal is not really pulling in all this data around like itemized purchases or Apple Pay is not either. They're just doing like the payment token. So we're really like also creating this like order order platform, which is an, uh, another big engineering effort. So we spent a lot of time over the summer building all these products. So it's, I think we launched at least four different products um, about a month ago. We launched the checkout page. We launched the dashboard for consumers. We launched a self-onboarding flow for sellers through big commerce, which is the first platform we launched on. I and mean, we launched a big commerce app. So there's a lot of different stuff that we sort of put into the wild at one time. So it was like definitely a, a big effort. And now we're definitely in like the growth and refining phase where now that it's out, we can sort of collect a lot of information and see how people are reacting to certain things. And like talk, we are talking to our sellers every single day to get feedback on things that we should add or that we can improve. So it's, it's a fun part of phase of the company because we're small enough that we can really be close to sort of all facets of the business um, and, and really move quickly to, to really like fill our mission, which is uh, to create these like incredible um, checkout products. I think you've kind of answered what was going to be my next question, which is how do you decide what to launch next? And it sounds like you're talking to the client, but based on that feedback, I'm sure there are many problems that clients need fixing. How do you prioritize? Good question. So I think we have a, I don't know if it's a unique view, but over a year ago when I was like sort of studying how businesses are created, I think it's really important to have like a very clear vision of the future of your company. So in November, right when I joined last year, I wrote like a first version of a master plan for fast, which is like, okay, first we're launching checkout. And then there's like the identity component. And then there's like a post-purchase component with different products. And then beyond that, there's like lots of ways we can build like different financial products on top of this like network that we're creating. So I spent a lot of time thinking about sort of like what, what the longer term strategy is and what that would be. So then it's like figuring out, okay, like what are the things that we tactically need to do in the short term? So I think it's really helpful if you're starting a company, even if it's like one or two people, it's like, how is this going to become like 1 billion or 10 billion or a hundred billion dollar company? Like you need to be able to understand what that vision looks like. Otherwise you're not going to necessarily be able to convince other people that, that you're able to, to do it. Because uh, a really big company is not just like a, a prototype product. It's like you have to have like a much bigger vision of of how it becomes something really big. So then in shorter term, then it's like about hiring the right people to execute on the vision and that it can actually build these types of products. I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do. Otherwise, lots of other people would have done it. But we've been able to recruit um, incredible people with lots of experience sort of building platforms at scale and also working within payments, which is like a bit of a, a unique skill set. And then it's figuring out like the order of products. So we first launched on big commerce, which was our first commerce platform. And then next up will be um, building, like launching a uh, fast checkout on different platforms, which are additional engineering effort, but will unlock distribution for us. So like WooCommerce and, and Magento and others. Um, and at the same time, it's it, this problem is really interesting because it also impacts like enterprise clients. So Gap and Nike and others like still have problems with checkout um, just as small stores do. So then it's like about building up our expertise so that we're able to like build partnerships with with really big companies as well. That makes a lot of sense. So I think it's clear the business model is pretty clear and, and it's clear who your customers are. 
But who are your main business partners? Because you can't make all this magic happen without some key partnerships, right? Yeah. So um, Stripe led our Series A in the spring, um, and they're a great partner for us. Uh, at our launch about a month ago, we announced a partnership with Big Commerce. So Big Commerce is a e-commerce platform uh, similar to Shopify um, that where people could set up different e-commerce stores. So so we're partnering with them. Where we built an app, so stores can, if you have a big commerce store, you can download the app and you can sort of have fast checkout installed very quickly on your site, which is for a payments product is pretty special because a lot of times, especially on custom platforms, uh, payments products can take months of engineering effort because we're managing the whole thing. So it's a front end button, but we're, we're not integrating with their backend payment processors where we're processing the payments through Stripe. So it, it, it enables us to manage the flow end to end from the hosted checkout page all the way through to the payout to the seller. So with that, people can install more easily. So our goal is to, just as we're working to reduce friction for any buyer or customer who goes to your website, we also want to reduce friction for businesses. So it's in the early stage, but we really want it to be as easy as possible for them to manage their business. Because a lot of times stores don't want to think about checkout, right? <laughs> they want to think about their products. They want to think about their customers. They don't want to have to deal with like payments problems. So we'll be continuing to build products that make it easier for businesses to, to manage the checkout and risk and, and payments part of their business. Awesome. A topic that we would like to talk about on this podcast is company culture. And you came in as a co-founder when it was just a couple of people. Describe the process of creating a culture and what kind of culture do you guys have at Fest? Yeah, great question. And, and one I really like talking about, I think there's been a lot of buzz online lately about culture as well. A lot of it i brought over from my team at Uber. So I was able to build a team of, um, we got up to 12 people or so that I directly managed. And I was able to build a very like inclusive um, and diverse team. So for other managers in the same area as me, like their teams may have been mostly male or um, not as diverse of backgrounds, but my team was mostly women. We had people from, I think, seven or eight countries from a team of 12 people. And like everyone always said, it was like on our team, it's like, you could feel like you could be like your whole self and like bring your whole self to work, which I think is really important. So a lot of that um, I've brought over to me with fast. It's like from the very beginning, I've, we've tried to build a really inclusive and diverse workplace. It's something whenever we're recruiting for new roles, we're really trying to like expand the potential subset of people who we may be able to work with or try to like look at networks outside networks we we normally have it's also like about just hiring like really good people character is like really important it's like are are people excited about the mission and do they want to work um on a team it's like a sports team it's not about like one superstar it's about everyone so it's like everyone should come in and like give their very best effort we do have like we have really big goals so there's a lot we need to build so there's like high expectations around performance but we've been able to bring in a lot of people who are just excited to build stuff because like a lot of times especially if you're at a big company for a long time you end up making like a very small incremental change to something or like working on processes that have already been in existence for a long time or you get slowed down by company processes whereas at fast it's like really like especially now it's like we're very focused on on building and people are really excited about that I guess you also have, this is related, I guess, to culture. You have a notoriously strong 
presence on social media, particularly Twitter, right? The company, you and the team, how is this related to your company culture? And also for a payments company, that's not typical. We've had other payment companies on the podcast. And when we tag them and I look at their social media presence, sometimes it's nowhere to be found. Yeah. So what happened with social was um, I had sort of developed a Twitter presence over time. I had gotten involved in Twitter. So before I started at Uber, even I was interested in investing, but I I invested in public stocks. Um, So I would use Twitter to get like earnings announcements or like follow what was happening with companies because what would happen was like earnings would be released and then there'd be different Twitter accounts that would like release the earnings. So that's where I sort of started. And then I started following tech, more tech companies when I moved to San Francisco and sort of got into tech. And I didn't know anything about venture capital at the time. I just like loved startups and I love trying to find companies that I think are undervalued. So where like the hidden gems that people don't know about, but that are going to be really big. So I just sort of love the discovery process of trying to search for these things and trying to get conviction around them. Um, and I also like spend a lot of time learning about personal finance. It was like also a personal thing. So I grew up in like a great family in the Midwest, but no one in my family really invested in the stock market. Um, so when I discovered the stock market and like how people make money on the stock market. It was like really a magical experience for me. And I was like, wow, this is like amazing. Cause I grew up like working so many, like whatever job I could get to make money. My dad worked like a hundred hours a week at a small restaurant that he ran. My mom was a nurse. So it was all very like hourly jobs that were like really tiring. So the, the, like, if you can make money by betting on companies, I was like, this is like incredible. So a lot of it was like, not evangelism, but like I wanted to spread like knowledge about investing that it doesn't have to be scary and complicated and that like more people should be investing in the stock market. Cause I just thought there was like a huge gap between people who like know about the stock market and, and people who don't. So it was like more just me like sharing knowledge as well. And then when I was at Uber, I started like sharing, sharing stuff about it. So when I joined fast about a year ago, I I forget how many Twitter followers I had, but people like sort of noticed when I when I went and joined Dom and Dom and I actually met on Twitter as well. So it was like a very early part of how we met and we were able to build a lot of sort of like excitement and, and buzz about the company on Twitter. And it was all organic at the beginning. Like Dom and I don't like still don't like plan any of our tweets, but we're like not sh- scared to like share what we think and our ideas with the world. And I think... Also, to I believe to build a really big business, it takes a lot of time and repetition, and like you have to repeat the same message like many times, and and over time, people like start trusting you because they've they've heard it a lot of times. It's like they they know what you stand for. It's like we haven't changed our mission or our goals like from the very beginning. Like we are very steadfast in in what we're doing and what we say we're doing, and then we go execute on it. So it also builds like trust. It's like we say we're going to do something, and, and then we go do it. So yeah, it's we've been able. To, we hired Matt Kobach, um, who who is like even better at Twitter than Dom and I. So he's sort of lapping us. But I think for us, it's been an incredible marketing channel to build awareness about the company in a way that's like maybe not as like closed off as like Instagram or LinkedIn or, or Facebook. Yeah, you can see and feel the, the transparency. Now, we're obviously talking remotely, not just because of the distance, but also because of what's going on in the world. Talk a bit about your experience throughout COVID and 
Has this affected your vision for the future? Has it changed any plans? Not really. I think for everyone, there was definitely sort of a lot of uncertainty in the spring. Like there was a lot of concern for people's health. Like people were like a little distracted, um, which they should be. It's like our, our families and our health are, are the highest priority. So it was definitely like a bit of adjustment. But I think once we were like able to get in the groove of working remotely, I don't really think it, it impacted our, our culture or what we were building. Um, and then we quick, pretty quickly started hiring remote people. And going back to culture, I think one reason I teamed up with Dom as well, it's like, he's like very optimistic about the future. I don't think I've ever heard him complain about anything. Um, and I think to like really build a big company, it's like, you just have to be optimistic and very forward focused. So, and he's like very high energy as well. So like we've been able to bring this energy and like keep it as part of our culture and you can sort of see it online as well. But like, that's really how we are internally. And people are just like so excited every day about what we're building. And they're just like excited to be part of this. Luckily, like at Fast, we were all in the office, but when I was at Uber, we had a lot of offices and people would dial into Zoom meetings all the time. So it wasn't like a foreign way of working for me. Um, and especially because we were so global, even though we had offices, I was very, very used to sort of remote work and I manage a team in Amsterdam. So I spend a lot of time on Zoom, um, not quite this much time, but I think a lot of people are finding that it's actually a lot, a lot more efficient in a lot of ways to, to meet people and, and do business on Zoom. Oh, and, and from a business perspective, like Dom and I were, were so bullish on this segment before COVID. Like Dom actually started the company initially because he saw his wife's grandmother be unable to order groceries online because she forgot her password. Um, and from a market's eyes perspective, online payments were growing about 15% year over year in the US and online payments were about 15% of US retail transactions. So it was a growth segment before. And then with COVID... The entire segment grew 30% in one quarter, <laughs> the entire market size. So it was just like sort of astronomical growth. And it really verified like the mission that we were after because like before it may be like a luxury to like order your groceries on Instacart or whatever. But with COVID, it just became like necessary for survival that people of all ages are able to easily use the internet and can log into passwords. And what gets me really excited too is especially like older people who have a hard time remembering passwords or maybe they can't see as well. And like they have these books with with different passwords and notes and like, it's just like not as native to them as it is to us. So it's like, how can we make the internet easy to easier to use for, for older people? And I think making it easier uh, passwords and, and payments and identity is a really big part of that. Fascinating. Well, Alison, we have, I'm proud to say that we have a few listeners who are interested in entrepreneurship or are currently building startups, right? You have sprinkled a lot of knowledge throughout the interview, but are there any specific reflections from this past year or two as an entrepreneur that you'd like to share? Yeah, I think being a founder has more validated a lot of my hypotheses and ideas rather than than change them. So I think the most successful founders will be people who are building a company because they want to solve a problem. Um, and a lot of times it's like personal to them or they have like specific expertise in the area. It's generally not because people say like, oh, I want to start a company. So like whatever you're building, like the most important thing is that you like believe it in your bones and you like know that you are the very best person to solve this problem. And that it's like 
a really big problem and that you have some sort of unique advantage that gives you superpowers over others who may be able to try to tackle the same problem. Um, it could be from your work experience. It could be from your personal experience. It, um, there's problems that people experience every day, but being a founder is a long-term journey. And I joke with Dom, I'm like, this is a sales job because Dom, like what Dom and I do most of our time is tell people a very similar story that what I told you about the founding of fast and, and what we're building. So it's, we're repeating the same messages often like over and over and over again. So if you don't believe that message you're telling and, and you don't believe it into your bones, like it's going to be really hard for you to go sell and repeat the same message to 10,000 people. And also if you don't really believe it, like other people aren't going to believe you. They're not going to believe that you can build it. They're not going to believe that you're going to like do this no matter what, even if it gets hard. Cause they want, it's like investing is, is betting on people and investing that they're the best people to build this thing and that they won't give up. So whatever it is, it's like you you really need to believe it in your bones. And then I think a second like helpful exercise is what I talked about with like sort of writing a master plan. I think when I wrote mine, I sort of went back to I'm I don't have a Tesla, but I've been fortunate to own Tesla stock for a long time. So I love tracking the company. But if you look at Elon's Tesla master plan from I don't know, it's probably a decade old at this point, but he really talks like clearly step by step about how he's going to build the company. And he actually did like every single thing on that list. So that's like the type of clarity of thought that it's like really, really valuable to have. Even when, before you've even started, a lot of people don't spend enough time thinking about the problem space they're tackling before they actually start building the products. Final question before we go, and this one's about your hobbies. Are there any hobbies that you love to do outside of fast, outside of investing? Yeah, I spend most of my time uh, with my husband and also doing endurance sports. So I, I spend a lot of time running. Um, I recently got a road bike, so I'm starting to do that. But as much time as I can spend like outside and, and in the mountains is, is really great. So fast everywhere in your life. <laughs> i'm not that fast of a runner but um yeah i like to be outside <laughs> awesome awesome well allison thank you again for joining really really outstanding to hear what you and the team are building and can't wait to see a lot more from you and fast awesome thank you so much for having me thank you for listening to today's episode of the wartum fintech podcast if you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.